we, we use this time to stop, to pause, to worship him, and to recognize that he is the Lord who has the right to invade our history, to interrupt our lives. And that's what we're talking about as we go throughout the month of December in this Advent season. We're looking each week at scenes in the Christmas story of people who have had their lives interrupted. And we're also looking at this in the lens of a Christmas Reformation. This is still the year 2017. 500 years ago, something happened within the church of the time where truths were rediscovered in God's word and that unleashed a flood of gospel transformation that made the church, unlike what it had been for so long, no longer controlled by man-made ideas, but fueled and empowered by the word of God and the one who had spoken them, the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. Good morning, by the way. I came up here eager to speak to you about one more person whose life was interrupted. It's a privilege to go to the book of Luke. So if you will, turn to Luke chapter 1. In a moment, I'll, I'll start in verse 26. And I want to tell you the story about this remarkable teenage girl whose life was changed in an instant. She went from obscurity and humble origin to being a household name. People all over the world know her and love her, and she is forever linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And her name, of course, is Johnny Erickson Tada. Johnny's remarkable story is known to most of us. And while her story is not recorded in the book of Luke, we'll get to that in a moment. Please don't worry, I will be talking about Mary. What we know is that when she was a young girl, she was active and, and athletic, and as a teenager, often rode horses and played tennis and went swimming. But it was at the age of 17 that Johnny suffered a terrible accident when diving into the Chesapeake Bay, having misjudged the shallowness of the water. Johnny suffered a fracture in her back, rendering her a quadriplegic. And she lost all the use of her body and limbs from the shoulders down. Now I mentioned that Johnny's life changed in an instant. The diving accident ensured that. She says now that she would not trade that event for anything in the world, for the fruit that it has brought to her life and her relationship with Jesus Christ. But according to her at the age of 17 when that happened, her question over the two excruciating years of therapy was, Oh God, this is now my life? You actually expect me to do this? That was 50 years ago, on July 30th, 1967. Reflecting back on that time now, Johnny wrote this year about her ministry to others who have gone through similar pain. She talks about a boy named Tommy who wrote her, who had been body surfing off the Jersey Shore, fell into the water and cracked his own spine, and is now likewise a quadriplegic. Johnny's reflecting on Tommy's case as she writes. She's unsure of what to write him through her voice recognition software. She's trying to compose him a letter, but she describes how hot tears came back as she recalls all of the anguish and the questioning and looking ahead at the future 
knowing any hope of any life that she had hoped to live was impossible to live now. And she knows that Tommy himself is facing the impossible. How did Johnny handle the impossible? She questions, how will Tommy? And how can any of us? A real question here today is, how can any of us handle the impossibilities of life? I want you to know that when God comes and does something in your life, he introduces it typically by a series of impossible things that you cannot do, things that you cannot overcome, things that you can't cross over. But God, by his grace, is preparing you for a life of impossibilities. He did this with Johnny, and we'll come back to her story at the end. So hang in there. It's really good. And to hear how it ends, or at least where it is now, 50 years later, is worth staying awake for, I promise you. But how can any of us handle things that we know in a sovereign universe where God is in control, we still face these things that are hard or difficult or impossible, chronic pain, where it's hard to get out of bed in the morning to face yet another day, a hard marriage where you know that you're not going anywhere and neither is your spouse, but nevertheless, your situation together is, is hard. Maybe you're single and you're not really feeling any hope today and your situation may seem impossible. Or maybe as I was reminded this week, you're a mom in a house full of little kids thinking that the ministry you once had seems impossible to do now. There are many layers to where we are this morning. And while none of us will experience a virgin birth, and very few of us, by God's grace, will become quadriplegic, somewhere in between those examples and all surrounding them is a God who transforms us by his grace within those impossibilities to live a life of impossibilities. And today we're looking at grace for a life of impossibilities. I'd like you to note, if you're here um, looking at this page, and if you are following along, uh, older kids here in the room, your theme actually will be nothing will be impossible with God. So you actually need to change the word for. I did that at the last minute today, realizing I had misread the Bible, and I want to make sure I get the Bible right, and I want to make sure that you have it on your papers right. Nothing will be impossible with God. And we'll get back to that in a little bit to explain why that change of word is so important. Today I want to take you through the Gospel of Luke, verses 26 to 38, in three points. I want to talk about Mary's story, Mary's example, and Mary's son. And that will round out our time today. First of all, Mary's story. Now we get to the Gospel, and now we focus on the other teenage girl whose life was changed in an instant. Mary of Nazareth. Verse 26, if you look there with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So let me set the scene for us, and in a moment we'll continue to read the dialogue between Mary and the angel Gabriel. But we start off in Nazareth. 
Many of us may not know where Nazareth is. I've never been to the Middle East, so I've not laid eyes on it, but I've read about it. And I know that in the the New Testament, when Jesus gathered his disciples, he had one named Nathaniel, whom had not met Jesus yet. But when he heard that Jesus came from Nazareth, his response instinctually was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Jews of the first century regarded Nazareth either with contempt or they thought nothing about it at all. On the one hand, it was situated up in the territory that was overrun with many Gentiles, many Roman soldiers. So Nazareth, in a sense, had an occupying group of people living there that were not full Jews. But on the other hand, in thinking nothing of it, it was nowheresville, far off the beaten path of where anybody would need to go. And the only reason you would ever truly live there is if you'd been born there. Many places like that all around us. And we might think that they're unimportant, but the small and insignificant and unimportant is not regarded that way by God. Were this advent, this coming of God's Son to be repeated, I believe it would be in the same way. It wouldn't be in the power halls of Washington, D.C. It wouldn't be in the kingdoms around the world today. It would be in some far-off place that nobody's really heard of, that no one pays much attention to. Because when God moves, he begins in such a way where the only way to go is to grow outward and upward, all because of his grace and the glory that he pours into that story. It's important to note that God is sending his angel Gabriel. Now, last week, Pastor Sam told us about the angel Gabriel. Um, He is the same one who six months prior had stood in front of Zechariah in the temple in that encounter that just dumbstruck Zechariah. Remember, he, he doubted, he disbelieved what God was saying through the angel, and the angel said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to talk until your son is born. And sure enough, he was struck dumb and did not talk until nine months later when John the Baptist was born. This is the same Gabriel who 500 years earlier had appeared to the prophet Daniel. Let that amaze you for a moment. Here is an agent of God who has seen scenes of God's story unfold at just the right moments. And here he appears in this nowhere town to this young maiden, Mary. Mary herself, most who study this text believe, is between the age of 14 or maybe as young as 12, likely somewhere in between. And I recognize in our culture in time, girls who are 12 years old are just done and finished playing with Tsum Tsums and Shopkins, all right? If you don't know what those are, parents with kids, you just go shopping. I know you know what those are. They're barely done playing with these things, and they're thrust into a world where they're confronted by so much, but they're not mature to really handle it just yet. Here is a 12, maybe 13 or 14-year-old girl who's confronted with the announcement that she's a virgin, never been with a man, yet is going to be pregnant. Would have blown any girl away. She's likely illiterate. In this time period, education was not invested into girls, apart from the reading of the Torah in the gathered assemblies and sometimes the retelling of the stories at home. That she was literate, at least to know these stories, becomes evident in the text that Savannah read for us this morning, Mary's 
Magnificat, called such because she starts it by blessing the Lord and talking about the blessing that is on her because of what the Lord did in her. Mary knew God's word and she had meditated on it, but is confronted here by the amazing announcement of this angel. Now Gabriel greets her. Look down at the text again with me. Verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now Mary puzzles over this greeting. Look with me at the next verse, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled. Now, was it at the angel? No, it was at the saying. This is an important thing to pick up from the text. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. As strange as it would be to have the seemingly timeless angel messenger appear in front of her and talk to her about the work of God, she is more deeply penetrated in the heart of what he says. Favored one? I mean, literally, this means someone whom the Lord is showing much grace. Someone who is the recipient of all this grace. And she wonders why. What does that have to do with me? And likewise, this strange statement, the Lord is with you. Well, certainly the Lord is with his people, Israel, but me? She's greatly troubled by these things and doesn't yet discern what all this means. So Gabriel reassures her, as angels often do with people. Typically when you see an angel, you'll fall down fearing for your life, afraid. Mary's not falling down afraid, but she nonetheless is reckoning, what can this mean for my life? And Gabriel reassures her, do not be afraid, Mary. And again says, for you have found favor with God, grace. Again, grace for a life of impossibilities. This is Mary's God who's coming to her and showing her this grace for what he's about to tell her. So Gabriel goes on and gives the announcement. Verse 31, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Stopping just there for a moment, Mary's mind would already be churning with the mechanical improbabilities of this. She has not known a husband. She has not been sexually unfaithful with a man prior to marriage. And she knows that now she's being told she's going to become pregnant and have a baby grow in her womb. How will this be apart from those ordinary means? It seems pretty immediate what Gabriel is telling her. And likewise, she would note, maybe just in passing, that this flood of information coming, that she was to call him Jesus. Now, there were a few people who named their sons Jesus in this time. The name means salvation. When an angel comes and tells you salvation is coming, and it's going to be in this son, and you will be the mother. What else can come? Well, Gabriel continues his announcement. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, the son of the most high. Elsewhere, those who feared the Lord and followed him were called sons of the most high, but none of them are called, none of us are called the son of the most high. This is a unique son. And the Lord God will give him, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Five things stacked up there, one after another. 
Mary could hardly take it in. It was coming at such a rapid pace. Yet it's recorded here in the book of Luke as she pondered these things and as the fruit of them bore out in her life over time. We'll see more of that in a moment. It's intended to do the same in us. This week in your bulletin insert, that's the thing on the inside of your bulletin. I didn't mean to be sarcastic about that. It just kind of came out. Inside your bulletin, you have an insert that is used to help you if you choose to use it in a way to dig further into God's word. Here's what I would encourage you to do sometime this week. Take it and go back to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Dig into what God and David talked about there as God covenanted, made a promise to David that although he was the greatest king of Israel to that point and wanted to do great things for God, God would not receive it from his hands, but it would instead build a great house for him and put one of his sons on the throne forever. Mary knew this. She'd heard these stories. She would have this son, this king? Verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, if you didn't catch it, this is the third time in the text that the word virgin has been applied to Mary. This is very important. We believe here that central to the identity of Jesus is his virgin birth. This means that it was unique in all the births that have ever taken place in all of time. Jesus was born and had been formed in the womb of Mary, not by any action of a human father. How would this happen? Well, that's essentially what Mary is asking. Verse 34, note she says, how will this be? Not how can this be? How will this be? I think that's an important distinction in the grammar there. If she had asked, how can this be? There might have been some seeds of doubt working in there, but the way Luke records it for us, we get inside information about another level of Mary here. She's receiving what the angel's saying. She's not doubting it. She's not fighting against it, but she really doesn't know how it's going to happen. Now, when I read this and I read what Zechariah said to the angel in verse 18, you can almost just look over the page. He said to the, to the angel, after the angel Gabriel, same angel, told him that his wife in her old age would bear a son, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I'll be honest, it doesn't seem that distinct or different from what I read in Mary's word here. But I do know this, God knows the hearts of those who are seeking him. And as Pastor Sam reminded us last week, each of us deals with some level of unbelief. But if we go to the Lord and we submit to him and we acknowledge that, like that man who bowed before Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We're bolstered for the next step. What I see here in Mary is a heart genuinely that wants to know how she can understand and do what God's calling her to do but she doesn't know how it's going to happen. So Gabriel gives her the answer in verse 35. Read there with me. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That word overshadow there in verse 35 is very important for us to draw out and to understand. Now, many cults today would seek to make that word something sexual, as if God came down from heaven, mated with a human wife, and what resulted was some kind of hybrid divine human 
species. Now, that is talked about all throughout other religions from millennia ago. This is a common idea. This word overshadow is intended by God to dispel any of that rubbish as being even conceivably possible. Overshadow in the Old Testament, if you trace its usage, was there when God filled the sanctuary with his holy presence. When the worship happened and when those gathered, they knew God was there because his glory overshadowed all. And it appears in the New Testament when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his closest disciples and suddenly Jesus himself is transfigured before them and they get a glimpse of what he will be like in the resurrection and in the coming kingdom. And they're afraid, rightly so, and a voice says, this is my son, hear him. This holy presence of God overshadowing all and enveloping them in holiness. And that's why Gabriel says what he says. Therefore, okay, this connects back to the process. Therefore, what results will be a holy child, the son of God. This is the miracle of the virgin birth. I don't know if it happened right then as Gabriel spoke to Mary. The glory of the Lord in this overshadowing presence by the Holy Spirit surrounded Mary, or if it was in the moments of quiet worship and response to God after. But at some point, this miracle of God formed the life of the eternal one the maker of all worlds, in Mary's womb. Amazing. This is a miracle. You can either believe it or not believe it, but you must believe it if you are to rightly know Jesus Christ. Now, this was all so incredibly overwhelming, so incredibly interrupting. What would happen to Mary after this? What would her parents and her family members say? What would happen to her in her community what would she ever tell her fiancé, Joseph? The death penalty by stoning for adultery was still in effect. And although it was not often applied, she could have the stigma. And in future times, we knew that she and Jesus both carried the stigma of illegitimacy from an adulterous relationship all their lives. But God knew what he was calling her to. He knew the impossibilities of her situation. And he gives her not only the grace to do it, but he gives her company in the midst of it. And the story takes this turn as the angel tells Mary what's happening with her cousin Elizabeth. Now, it's amazing and important in this day that the, the angel gives this announcement because Facebook wasn't around then. Elizabeth's page wasn't up yet. Pictures of one month of pregnancy, two months of pregnancy, and the belly growing just weren't public yet. And so Mary learns this and is amazed. He tells her, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then he gives her this sentence, which is so important for us. For nothing will be impossible with God. Earlier, students, I told you that on my paper I put, nothing will be impossible for God, and that's true. But that's not what the scripture says. In one sense, if that's what we were preaching here, if that's what I was saying the scripture says, it would say that. And it could mean something like God is in heaven, 
The petitions go up to him. He sees the plight of the person down here, and he says, I can do that for you. But in this, our Bibles, we have the phrase and the saying and the truth, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary's in for this, not alone. She is in the midst of this with God. God, who will not be scandalized, no sin can stick to him, and the same will be true for her holy son someday. Nevertheless, she needs this initial boost of faith that God is with her in every possible way to sustain her, to strengthen her, to challenge her, and to grow her faith so that what is so small and insignificant now will go on in a way that only God could do to be a story that all the world knows. This is Mary. That's her story. Now let's look at Mary's example. What can we learn from her? How many of you speak Latin here? Is there anybody? Some of our classically trained individuals? Wow, I won't call on you. I saw one hand back there. Um, Most of us don't speak it, all right? Uh, But 500 years ago, that was all that was spoken in churches. And if you didn't know Latin, you couldn't understand the Vulgate, the translation, the Latin translation of the scripture that was read. Now, back in verse 28, if you look at 128 again, you see there, it says, Mary was troubled, that's verse 29, but in verse 28, the reason was, the angel said to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, the Latin Vulgate translates verse 28 as, hail Mary, full of what? Grace. All right. That is a bad translation, which gave rise to some terrible myths about Mary. In the Middle Ages, all right, so 500 years ago or more, as a result of this translation and the way that it was applied, people believed that Mary was so full of grace that it was possible to pray to her in heaven and that she would hear their plight and either talk to her son about the situation and go back and give an answer, or she herself could just dispense the help that was needed in times of need. But this made people hope in Mary instead of in Christ. That's never good. And it became worse when in 1854, long after the Protestant Reformation, Pope Pius IX made up the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And he said there, from the first moment in her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from stain of original sin. So Jesus and also Mary were born without sin. No, that's not right. Now, the virgin birth is important because it teaches us that Jesus alone was born without sin. Since the fall of Adam, everyone is born into sin. Despite what we hear in the media these days, not everybody is a child of God. We are sadly broken by sin and need a restoration. Otherwise, why would God need to send his only beloved son? Mary would be appalled at what has happened to her example and her character. 
And it's important, you know, since we have a Christmas Reformation to reference one pope and also Martin Luther. So what did Martin Luther have to say about Mary? He once wrote, Oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. You are the crown of them all. That's appropriate respect to Mary. And I would just say it's blasphemous to worship Mary. That means you are according to Mary what only belongs to God. Yet it is right to respect her and to learn from her. So what can we learn from our sister Mary, this blessed woman of all women who have ever lived to have borne Jesus Christ? Well, I traced Mary's example through our passage and into Luke 2, and I want to quickly highlight some things about her with you. What can we learn from her? Well, mostly what we learn from her is about her inner world, how she thought, what she felt, what she did during all of these transforming scenes when her life was so interrupted. In verse 29 of chapter 1, she was greatly troubled. I've already made allusions to her introspective nature, but here I'll just state, Mary emerges throughout the New Testament, especially in Luke 1 and 2, as this deep well, so young, but, but so full of the glory of God and the grace of God and meditating on the work of God. Greatly troubled as she was, by verse 38, she is humbled as the bond slave of the Lord. I didn't mention her response to the angel earlier. What she says there is this, I am the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's humbled. In verses 46 to 55, Mary bursts out in a beautiful song, the same text, again, that Savannah read for us this morning. She sings that she came from a humble estate and the Lord looked on her. It's beautiful. He looked on me and showed me mercy. By chapter 2, verse 19, as Jesus is in the manger, and she is there with the infant, the shepherds come, telling of the marvelous things that have happened out in the countryside and the, the myriad, myriad angels that sang the glory of God. And it says there that Mary treasured these things up, pondering them in her heart. And finally, in the weeks ahead, in the temple in Jerusalem, in chapter 2, verses 34 to 35, Mary's heart would sink as she meets an older man named Simeon, who's been waiting all his life for the arrival of the Messiah. And Simeon would say, in a prophecy from God, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The sign that is opposed that her baby son was going towards would ultimately be the cross, where Mary would stand one day as she watched her own son being crucified and heard him take care of her and speak to what he knew her continuing hardships would be when he looked at one of his disciples and he said, Behold your mother. And to his own mother, mother said, behold your son. Mary's life would be turned upside down by all that was coming. How would she face any of this? 
I want to tell you the first example that I think we can take away from Mary, and it's this. Mary listened, she received, she believed, she treasured, and she pondered the word and work of God. These are values that we don't really highly prize so much as we rush from one thing to the next, especially whenever December comes around. Instead, how much would we glean about what God is doing in us and in our world if we would take the time to read his word, to listen to it, to receive it, not argue, to believe it, to know he is speaking the truth, to treasure up these things in our heart and ponder them over and over again. When you do this, you'll be like Mary and you'll burst out in song. The heart of the worshiper who treasures God, even when life seems impossible, does not focus on what's impossible. You focus on what God is doing. And this is Mary. This is how she responds to her life circumstances. And it's beautiful. Now also, Mary accepted her place in God's redemptive plan. This is the second thing I see from her example. She accepted her place in God's redemptive plan. Mary's story really, prior to this, was insignificant. Had God not shown grace to her, she would have continued on, in the eyes of many, just being another girl who got married so young, had lots of kids, and then lived her life out in the village and died, just like everybody else did. But this is not God, and this is not the way that God works. Nothing is insignificant to him. No places are too small for his notice and care. But particularly, he highlights this young girl as as deep of a well of meditation and grace as she is because of his work in her, and he changes her. In one sense, as we're talking about life and its impossibilities and its interruptions, this is the ultimate interruption. When you and I believe that God is working in our lives and what his story is, is doing is way more important than what we want to do. The ultimate interruption is when God shows us that we are just a blip in the time scale of what he's doing. And if we are not a part of his story, then our story will fade off and by our self-will, our self-determination, our self-rule, we will go into a place separate from God forever. In eternal punishment. Did Mary believe that? I think she did. In her song, she tells you this in, verses, in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She knows that those who preceded her and those who are coming after her will be around combined for a whole lot longer than she is. But she knows that those who came before her and those who go after her will live and enjoy God are those who will fear him, who will yield to him, who will live in awe of him. Mary likewise tells us in verses 50 and 51 and 52, chapter 1, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. So God resists The proud, friends. In Mary's example to us of yielding to God and his plan, submitting to his story, not hers, 
there is this reality that God brings down those who will ignore God and will not see the glory that he is unveiling from generation to generation. And likewise, that he exalts those of humble estate, verse 52. He fills the hungry with good things. The reality is, none of us can be exalted unless we realize we are so low, so low that we cannot in any way pull ourselves up. I think it's dying in the United States, this idea that we can somehow pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make something of ourselves. And we do need to work hard, but make no mistake about it, that is not the gospel. There is no hope in that version of life. The version of life that is reality, that is a part of God's story, are people like us who humble ourselves before God, repenting of our sins and yielding to the king who arrives on the scene. And this leads us to our last point. Although it is brief, it's the most vital. This is Mary's son. Once again, if you looked at the announcement of who this son would be, we see that this son is great. I love that word. He will be great. And indeed, he was great. No one who ever lived is like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who by their artistic skill could communicate more through their art than Jesus Christ. There is no one who is more wise than Jesus Christ. And all the wisdom of the world can't stack up to him. There is no military leader who is more strong or powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of angel armies. He is great. He is the son of the most high God. He is the true and final king over David's kingdom. And his rule will never end. You might be tempted to think that right now he is not ruling. As the nations make war with each other, as there's a threat of this or the threat of that, Jesus told us these things would happen. And he said, and then the end would come. We're anticipating that Jesus will come back again. That his first coming as an infant was just this small, bundled little package that would keep growing and growing, and growing, and growing, and growing, until all the world would see him and bow to him as the only right king. This is coming. And if you think that his kingdom somehow will never come, we're told that his kingdom will never end. You may not see it right now, as I said, it's as small as a little baby, but it's been growing all these 2,000 years. I heard one preacher this year say that God's truth is a slow train coming, but it's coming. Jesus himself said it is a a mustard seed that's planted in the earth, and it's the most insignificant little thing, but before you know it, it has mushroomed into this huge plant. The kingdom of God and his king are coming. And so my non-Christian friends here today, see Mary's example and humble yourself before her gracious God. Humble yourself before her greater son. He has come to bear your sin, your sin. Will you yield to him today? And will you confess him as your king and confess your sin to him? You need a full pardon. There can be no sin in his kingdom, but he died by his shed blood to grant you forgiveness for that sin. Will you come to him today? 
Brothers and sisters here today, I want you to see Mary's example as she humbles herself and accepts her place in God's story. You, no doubt, may be struggling today with what God is doing in your life. But by her willingness to follow God and to worship him at this moment in time, she couldn't see everything coming, but she knew the God who was taking her there. If you are dealing with physical pain that seems impossible to get through one more day, fellowship with God in the midst of that. Talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive, listen to his words. Believe it, ponder it, treasure it. If you feel insignificant because of the limitations you feel with a disability, whether that be mental or physical or emotional, God does not pass you by. He grants grace for a life of impossibilities for you. Each of us must yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his life within us will help us to grow, to change, as grace upon grace over all the moments of our life help us to know him better and to make him known. So in the end here, I want to ask, what happened to Johnny Erickson Tata? How has she lived 50 years of impossible? I'd really like her to tell in her own words that story as I read them to you. She talked about how she spent the first year or two after her accident really just trying to disappear or die. But God changed her through the counsel of friends who came alongside her from reading God's word and, and meditating on it and devouring it, repenting of sins then and now. What she says is a time just this past July, 50 years after her diving accident. Her words, last week, my husband Ken and I were at our Johnny and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big, noisy dining hall when a college-aged volunteer approached me, holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd and asked, Miss Johnny, do you ever think how none of this would be happening were it not for your diving accident? I flashed a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene, suddenly had a 35,000-foot view of the moment. She's right. How did I get here? It has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in tiny moments, like breathing in and out, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. What you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. It's hard, but it's beautiful, this stuff of which God makes 50 years of your life. Like, when did that happen? I cannot say, but I sure love Jesus for it.